Another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to talk about not such a great day. That not such a great day would be April 15th, otherwise known as Tax Day, otherwise known as Ouch, otherwise known as Can We Stop This Burdensome, Nonsensical System of Taxation That We Have in This Great Country? How did we get there? Why do they have April 15th as Tax Day anyway? There are so many mysteries about our American system of taxation. Most of all, how did we go from a country that was founded on resistance to taxes and rebellion against taxes to a country where there are lots of people who actually embrace the idea of a 90% top tax rate? How did the uh, income tax get first imposed and then removed and then declared unconstitutional and then a constitutional amendment adopted with overwhelming support to allow an income tax. And isn't there a better way of doing things in this country than uh, basically burdening people with this massive tax code, which has far more words in it than the Bible, but a lot less spiritual and enlightening authority? These and other questions are going to be addressed in this very, very special broadcast, a broadcast of timeless importance. It is called... The Shocking Truth About Taxes. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Because I'm the tax man. That uh, work of tax protest written by the Beatles, of course, that by George Harrison, that was actually the first Beatles song that he wrote. And he wrote it in anger in April of 1966. And uh, when he talks about one for you, 19 for me, yeah, that's the way it was in uh, Great Britain at the time. The top tax rate, which, of course, the Beatles had to face, even being working class boys who had suddenly made a big, was 95 percent. Yeah. One for you, 19 for me. And then should 5 percent appear too small, be thankful I don't take it all because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Now, actually, there was a uh, very long tradition of British tax protests going back some 750 years before that song was even written. Uh, The Magna Carta, the great uh, charter of liberty, as it's been called, the first document limiting the powers of a monarch, which was um, written down in Runnymede Meadow in 1215, great famous moment in world history. It all began as a tax protest. The nobles were ticked off in a very, very big way, about obnoxious taxes, burdensome taxes, and seizures of property by uh, King John. That was unacceptable to them. But um, that kind of hatred, resentment, uh, distrust of heavy taxes had been tempered uh, largely in Great Britain itself. But in the colonies, it, it flourished. And this despite the fact that the colonies were very, very lightly taxed. Here is the the amazing story about the tax rebellion that became the American Revolution. At the time that um, the 
uh, American colonies helped Britain win uh, what was called here the French and Indian War, which was actually the Seven Years' War. Uh, Americans weren't suffering in poverty. In fact, by most measures, the American British colonists had the highest living standards on earth. And they fought this war, which uh, ended in 1763. And it was a war, basically, who was going to control North America? And they were, of course, terribly worried. The French, who were hostile, and they were Catholic, and most of the British colonists were Protestant, of course, that um, that war put Britain deeply, deeply into debt. How deeply into debt? The, um, The national debt in Britain doubled. The Seven Years' War was by far the most expensive war that Britain had ever waged, partially because it cost so much money to bring troops and supplies and weapons and everything over to the New World from Great Britain. And all of a sudden they faced an unimaginable debt at the time, in 1764, of £133 million. Double what the debt had been before and the interest payments were enormous. Now, they calculated that the public debt carried by every single Englishman was 18 pounds. But um, this is an amazing thing. To pay off this debt, Englishmen were asked to pay an average of 25 shillings a year in taxes. And in the colonies, they were paying only sixpence. In other words, one-fiftieth. The tax rate was 50 times higher in Britain itself than it was in the colonies. And um, suddenly the new British um, ministry that came into power under uh, Lord Granville thought, this is not right. We have just fought this huge war. We've gone deeply into debt to protect the American colonists against the threat of Indian attacks and to protect the American colonists against the French. And we've really done this all for them. Uh, They're going to have to start paying. And... um, They knew that being good Englishmen, uh, the Americans didn't like taxes. They liked the fact that they had the highest living standard in the world. They liked the fact that they paid 150th in taxes what uh, the Brits back home paid. So they devised a very clever plan. They decided they would lower the duties and tariffs and customs and other things that the Americans were supposed to be paying. At least they would lower them on paper but that actually begin collecting them uh, during the war and even prior to the war. America was a long way away uh, across a big ocean, and basically the Brits had left the American colonists alone. All of that was now supposed to change. They were actually supposed to start collecting these lower customs duties, and the Americans didn't really notice that they were lower. They just noticed that all of a sudden people are trying to take some money out of their pockets. And then uh, the... uh, George Grenville, who was in charge of British policy, had another brainstorm, a Stamp Act. This was a special duty just for America to help the Americans pay off their debts that had been incurred because of the war. Even before that brainstorm was there, Benjamin Franklin actually was... uh, talking about the fact that they were manning all these new customs agents and tax collectors they were sending out to the colonies. 
And he noted that uh, these were folks who were greedy, needy, and low-born. And he wrote this, their necessities make them rapacious. Their officers make them proud and insolent. Their insolence and rapacity make them odious. And being conscious they are hated, they become malicious. Their malice urges them to a continual abuse of the inhabitants in their letters of administration, presenting them as disaffected and rebellious and as weak, divided, timid, and cowardly. Government thinks it necessary to support and countenance its officers. I think one may clearly see in the system of customs now being exacted in America by act of parliament the seed sown of a total disunion of the two countries. This was 12 years before the Declaration of Independence. And the Stamp Act, of course, hurried that process in 1765. Uh, Paul Johnson, the great historian of both America and Britain, says one of the problems with the Stamp Act is it was almost perfectly calculated to fall on the two classes of people who are best suited for circulating grievances. Number one, people who um, uh, who published newspapers <laughs> or wrote pamphlets because now you had to get a paper with a certain stamp on it. Otherwise, you simply weren't allowed to do that. And number two, people who ran taverns, which was a very big deal in the colonial period. Uh, they had to pay a registration fee of one pound a year. Uh, the Stamp Act was wildly unpopular and led to all kinds of confrontations and helped to shape the American character because really the crisis over the Stamp Act, again, 11 years when the Stamp Act was passed before the Declaration of Independence, helped to show that when it came to taxes, uh, Americans were not going to be patient or understanding or enthusiastic. So what happened and how did that lead to revolution and ultimately to a situation that we have today where we give a third of our money away in taxes. In those times, we were talking about pennies. What happened? We'll find out in this special broadcast, The Shocking Truth About Taxes. To purchase this special show, go to MedvedHistoryStore.com. Figuring out which way is even easier. This uh, special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, The Shocking Truth About Taxes, uh, talks about the uh, American experience with uh, taxing ourselves, but that experience began with resistance to taxes from people across the ocean. Uh, the British government and the imposition, particularly the Stamp Act, which was a fateful mistake in 1765, 11 years before the revolution. The idea was basically anything on paper had to have a special stamp on it. And uh, this would intrude basically stamp collectors and distributors who would sell the authorized paper with a proper stamp on it into every aspect of colonial life. It, it meant that basically the government was going to get involved everywhere. And uh, how did folks respond? There's a fine description by Christopher Hibbert in, in his book, Redcoats and Rebels, The American Revolution Through British Eyes. And he writes, early in the morning of a hot August day in 1765, a large crowd of Bostonians could have been seen advancing on Hanover Square. Here, from an elm, 
soon to be known as the Liberty Tree, hung an effigy of Andrew Oliver, a wealthy merchant who had accepted the office of distributor of stamps for Massachusetts Bay. On one arm of the effigy was pinned a paper inscribed with the words, What greater joy did New England see than a stamp man hanging on a tree? Most people don't realize that the famous Liberty Tree was actually meant to be a lynching tree. After uh, they danced around the effigy for a while, a mob took the effigy up to Tower Hill and placed it upon a huge bonfire. They uh, then went down to Oliver's Wharf. He was the stamp man. And that was supposed to be where he was going to build his intended stamp office. They pulled the building down and marched to his house. They hurled stones at the windows, which were filled with glass imported from England. They smashed his garden fences, plucked fruit from his trees, and forced their way through the front door to search for the guy himself. Uh, they might have um, grabbed him and thrown him out the window, the broken windows, as they planned. But Thomas Hutchinson, who was the very rich, very unpopular chief justice and lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, showed up with the sheriff and some reinforcements. And the mob shouted insults, uh, then dispersed after um, uh, throwing some uh, bricks at uh, the sheriff and the lieutenant governor and his men. The next day, uh, they called upon Hutchison himself to resign. When he didn't do so immediately, they marched up to, uh, to his home. And as uh, Christopher Hibbert reports... His splendid house, like Oliver's, was attacked by a mob shouting, Liberty and property! Liberty and property! A cry which, uh, as the governor, Francis Bernard, caustically observed, was the usual notice of their intention to plunder and pull down a house. Unlike uh, Oliver's house, Thomas Hutchinson's house did not escape with broken windows and smashed furniture. Some years before, when it had caught fire accidentally, the crowds who gathered to watch the conflagration had shouted, let it burn. Now the mob completely wrecked it, threw smashed furniture and family portraits into the street, destroyed numerous documents and manuscripts, including a history of Massachusetts, which Hutchinson had written, and broke into a strong box to steal all the money it contained. Hutchinson himself was considered lucky to escape with his life. Now, all of this is 11 years before the American Revolution. Um... The nation was aflame, every colony. Uh, there were meetings, there were demonstrations, there was protest, there were violence over the Stamp Act. It didn't involve that much money. It was less than two cents on the dollar, absolute maximum. But the colonists were enraged. It was here that they coined the phrase, no taxation without representation. Here is the basic problem. They had been minding their own business, relying on their colonial assemblies, uh, doing uh, their own thing, and being left alone by Britain, which was far away. And all of a sudden now, they're, the British are inserting themselves, the Parliament is inserting itself, and uh, the Americans understood that if they allowed this kind of taxes from people they had not elected and they had not consented to and felt that they didn't know and didn't understand them, then their liberty was over. Meanwhile, back in uh, Britain in Parliament... A lot of the most prominent leaders, including William Pitt, the former prime minister, and including uh, people uh, like Edmund Burke, the great conservative parliamentarian, uh, thought the entire Stamp Act was a foolish idea. So they withdrew it. 
And there was celebration and bonfires and rejoicing and hallelujahs throughout the American colonies. But the uh, British ministry was insistent in issuing the withdrawal together with a declaratory act, which said uh, we can go ahead and impose taxes of whatsoever kind and whatsoever means we desire, insisting that they had the right still to tax people however they wanted, whenever they wanted. So what you have here is a, a perfect disaster of policy. On the one hand, you've encouraged the Americans in their very stubborn and violent resistance to the Stamp Act. They've won a great victory. They've defended their liberty as they see it. And on the other hand, you're saying, well, wait, we're going to get you. And they later came to get them which with what was called the Townsend Acts, which was yet another attempt by yet another prime minister. Uh, this one, the prime minister known as Champagne Charlie Townsend, he liked celebrating and partying much more uh, elegant guy than uh, making policy. But he had all kinds of um, new ideas for uh, taxing people and getting money out of the colonies and putting taxes on glass and lead and tea. Beginning to sound familiar? Well, <laughs> the colonists responded just as you might expect. Uh, more protests, more anger. And again, they won before, and now they won again. They agreed in the face of protests, oh, yeah, we're going to withdraw all of these other special duties, all of these other special duties will go away, but we're going to keep the duty on tea. Now, why was that? It's because the um, British government also had to deal with the East India uh, Company, which had literally hundreds of thousands of pounds of tea that they were unable to sell. See, the British East India Company which was busy in India uh, bringing in tea, was also a concern of the government. They didn't want them to go bankrupt, so they had this great idea. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to sell them this tea really cheap, but we're going to keep the tax on tea. But here's the deal. Tea with the tax, because the tea is so cheap, because it's coming out of these wharves where in these storehouses where it was just being kept, it's only going to cost two shillings. And before, without the tax, it cost three shillings. So here we'll be able to get money in taxes. We'll get money to bail the British East India Company out. And we'll hide the tax. We'll have people pay it later. We'll have people pay it in London. It didn't feel fool the uh, patriots and the sons of liberty. And the result was the most famous tax protest of all time. We will get to the Boston Tea Party and more in this special broadcast. Or go to medvedforhillsdale.com. This special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, The Shocking Truth About Taxes, uh, tells the story of the long and sometimes tortured relationship of the American people with the attempts by governmental authorities, initially British, and then later our own American authorities, to impose various kinds of taxes on us. Of course, no more famous tax protest ever than the Boston Tea Party. And what was amazing about it was it was a response to a, um, a scheme by the British government of Lord North, an unbelievably incompetent government. But they had come up with this very, very clever idea. We're going to provide cheaper tea to people. 
were going to undercut even the smugglers. And this was part of their genius because they knew that they weren't going to get much taxes uh, out of tea in New York and Philadelphia, the other two big cities in the colonies, because basically they were already um, buying most of their tea from smugglers. And that was a very big business. There are a lot of people who smuggled various things into the colonies, and there were various people who were smuggling tea. Boston, however, had never uh, succeeded in in developing a, an indigenous smuggling industry. And so the folks in Boston were prepared to do without tea. They were uh, pro- providing sarsaparilla tea as some kind of a substitute. They did tea out of other kinds of roots. And here... The Brits had the idea that, okay, we're going to go ahead and sell tea for less money, even while they are paying some of this taxes. This will establish our ability to tax them, get them in the habit of sending taxes to help pay off this debt that was endured by uh, the fighting in the French and Indian War. But the Sons of Liberty, led by Samuel Adams and John Hancock, had would have none of it, would have none of it. Uh, The uh, British sent um, a a series of ships full of uh, literally hundreds of thousands of pounds of tea to the New World, trying to get rid of this British East India Company tea. And in New York and Philadelphia, they were just turned away. They, They said, no, we don't want it. We don't want it. They were happy with their smugglers anyway. We don't care about your cheaper tea. Go home. They went home. The governor of Massachusetts, uh, um, Governor Hutchinson, who was um, not uh, tremendously happy about what had happened to his home, uh, that particular governor was much more stubborn, and he refused to send the ships back unless they had unloaded their tea. They called a mass meeting, and the mass meeting occurred in uh, December, Uh, Obviously, a very, very cold night in Massachusetts. December is serious in Massachusetts. And uh, it was a moonlit night, and they uh, called this mass meeting uh, for people to participate. According to some experts, there were as many as 7,000 people who crowded outside uh, the uh, church where the meeting was being held. And uh, which would be extraordinary because the whole population of Boston was only 16,000. But there were long speeches and resolutions about boycotts and no, we're not going to drink the tea and we're not going to drink the tea. And then at at some point, uh, there were a group of people uh, who shouted out, the Mohawks are come and Boston Harbor a teapot tonight. And there were a group of people who had rather elaborate, pre-prepared costumes as Mohawk Indians. Now, Samuel Adams was not among them. Apparently, Samuel Adams was still at the meeting saying, wait, wait, I'm not done speaking. When all these people are coming out following these Indians, they had soot on their faces to make them look like Indians. They were wearing war point. They had to disguise themselves because what they were doing was strictly illegal. They marched down to uh, Griffin's Wharf, uh, jumped on board the ships in the moonlight, broke open... Uh, tea chests with tomahawks and then threw their contents into the water and threw the splintered containers of the chests after them. They um, uh, dumped all 342 chests of tea into the water. Uh, This was a lot of tea. It was 35,000 pounds of tea. And it was so thick in uh, in the water of Boston Harbor 
that actually they couldn't get it to sink. It was just sort of standing there, and they didn't want anyone to use the tea or benefit from it. So they actually um, went to some lengths to make sure that it, it got pushed down. Now, after the Boston Tea Party, they actually swept the decks clean and wanted to make sure that they knew that no one was actually stealing the tea. There had been a small padlock belonging to one of the masters of one of the ships that had been accidentally damaged. A replacement was provided afterward. That didn't stop this outrageous act from provoking a huge overreaction and ultimately a revolution. So how did we get to be so accepting of taxes after these beginnings? Well, there's free color samples anytime you want before you even order. And free shipping, too. No sales tax in most states. And free advice from experts. Set up your home now so it's ready for spring at blinds.com. The uh, President's March, the music there, by American composer Philip File, written to honor our first and perhaps greatest president, George Washington. And yes, George Washington won the Revolutionary War, and uh, a new government took charge of the um, associated 13 colonies. And uh, there was, of course, a a general feeling that, uh, well, now we don't have to worry about obnoxious tax collectors anymore. We've gotten rid of British rule, no more taxation without representation. But they were stuck with taxation with representation. Uh, It didn't work out to be a paradise after the Revolutionary War. Why? Because the same way that the British were broke after the French and Indian War, the 13 colonies were even more broke after the American Revolution. They had been operating under a federal government based upon the Articles of Confederation. Now, the Articles of Confederation were formerly called the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. They really did mean to create a new country, but it was a very weak national identity because the Continental Congress, under the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, had no powers of taxation at all. If they wanted money, and this applied to Washington's army, it applied to everything. If they wanted money, they had to ask for it from the states. Only the states could tax people. And there's a fascinating um, letter from John Jay, who was president of the Continental Congress in 1779. And John Jay, who went on to become the first chief justice of the United States, wrote to the states begging for $45 million to keep the war going. And he wrote that taxes are the price of liberty, the peace, and the safety of yourselves and posterity. He said in his letter that Americans should avoid having it said that, quote, America had no sooner become independent than she became insolvent, or that her infant glories and growing fame were obscured and tarnished by broken contracts and violated faith. So how did the um, states respond to this anguished plea? They never came up with the money. <laughs> they, they didn't send it. it. It was a perpetual problem during the revolution, and it was also a problem afterward. And some states, all the states had debts. They had all sold bonds. They had all borrowed money to uh, continue this war effort that was ultimately successful. But some of the states actually got fairly serious about trying to repay these uh, creditors and to establish credit and get the economic system working again. And that was certainly the case in Massachusetts. And in Massachusetts, it proved 
disastrous. Why? Well, basically because there were people in the West, most of them farmers, many of them veterans, many of them heroic veterans of the revolutionary struggle, who all of a sudden found themselves with tax collectors, exactly the kind of thing they had fought against in the revolution. But these were tax collectors from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now, one such um, a veteran of the war was a captain in the militia named uh, Daniel Shays. He had been at the Battle of Lexington, the Battle of Saratoga, a hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. In fact, in 1780, he had been presented with an ornamental sword by General Lafayette. Later, he had to sell that sword for a few dollars to pay off some of his debts. He had many debts, and so did many small farmers in the area. To give you some flavor of what they were up against, there were meetings and protests and protests of all the tax burdens and the attempts at debt collection and the attempts to collect back taxes. And at one town meeting, there was a farmer whose name was Plow Jogger. That's not a pseudonym. That was his name. And he said this, I have been greatly abused, have been obliged to do more than my part in the war, been loaded with class rates, town rates, province rates, continental rates, and all rates, been pulled and hauled by sheriffs, constables, and tax collectors, and had my cattle sold for less than they were worth. The great men are going to get all we have, and I think it is time for us to rise and put a stop to it and have no more courts, nor sheriffs, nor collectors, nor lawyers. Good luck with that they actually began shutting down courts. There were thousands of people, literally, who rallied in western Massachusetts to shut down the courts that were trying to take people's property based upon non-payment of taxes. And this led to the episode that was known as Shays' Rebellion. It was a very, very serious matter. Uh, Shays and his Confederates eventually raised an army. They had 1,500 people who stormed the armory at Springfield, hoping to get more weapons to feed the rebellion. And they were in total resistance to the government of the Commonwealth back in Boston and the governor. And remember, this is not a British governor. This is American now, an elected governor. This guy, Governor Bowden, had succeeded John Hancock as governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. John Hancock, the first one to sign the Declaration of Independence. But um, the battle at the armory led to the death of uh, four of the rebels. They were eventually dispersed. Daniel Shays fled. And what's amazing about this is that there were people who were uh, condemned. This is even before they were condemned by the courts and said uh, that uh, they, they faced death sentences. Actually, two of the rebel leaders were executed. Shays fled to Vermont. He was hiding out in the woods. Finally, in 1788, he came back from the woods in Vermont uh, when he was pardoned. There was a general amnesty for many of the rebels in Shays' rebellion. But it shook things up a great deal and made it very, very clear that the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union were not going to be perpetual. They weren't working. A government with no taxing power was no government. And they had already called for a constitutional convention. But the constitutional convention at the time the Chase Rebellion occurred in uh, 1786, that um, Chase Rebellion occurred in 1786, helped to provoke the kind of constitutional convention that then occurred in 1787. 
Uh, the hanging of the uh, two of the condemned men from Shays' Rebellion actually occurred while the Constitutional Convention, well, shortly after it was in session. So how did Shays' Rebellion, another tax rebellion, shape the Constitution of the United States? We'll get to that and much more in this special broadcast. Dot com. It's true that the American Revolution was largely the product of a tax revolt, a rebellion against taxes. Uh, the people of the colonies were not starving. They were not hungry. They had the highest uh, standard of living in the world. It wasn't like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. They were rebelling against government's attempt and power to tax them. And that was true of the Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. That's what it was about. But the Constitution was about something else again. Remember, the um, independence declared 1776. The war won formally. They signed a peace treaty, 1783. They didn't come to draft the Constitution until 1787. And in the interim, they had seen that the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union were not working. Why? Because the federal government had no ability to raise money at all. They couldn't. They couldn't assess taxes on anybody. And that was why the Constitution actually expanded the government's power to assess taxes on people. It didn't reduce it. And as a matter of fact, the um, very first aspect of governmental power that the Constitution declares at the very beginning is Clause 1 of Article 1, Section 8, where they talk about what Congress can do, says this, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. It's a broad statement of power. But then later, they threw in something limiting and complicating. And no one was sure what it meant, even at the time. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4. No capitation, that means head tax, or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Now, as they were reading over the draft of the Constitution, Rufus King, who was one of the delegates of the Constitutional Convention, asked a question. It's recorded in the um, re records of the debates. It says, Mr. King asked, what was the pre precise meaning of direct taxation? No one answered. <laughs> and they were left with this confusion. And that confusion helped uh, shape the development of a very confusing and messy tax system. It was, however, a tax system that managed to keep the republic afloat for many, many years, uh, more than 100 years, as a matter of fact, until a federal income tax was formally authorized. But actually, they had established the Internal Revenue Service even before. That was established by uh, one president we don't normally associate with high taxes. But that is all part of the story. America's troubled love-hate relationship with taxes. The shocking truth about taxes. <laughs> 